money does really clarify things. If the supply is finite and you can only churn out so many things at once, does it become a sort of limiting factor on the war? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, November 29th. Today, Julia Yaffe is here to discuss a conundrum facing the United States as it sends billions of dollars of military aid to Ukraine. Does the Biden administration even have enough weapons to send? The grinding land war with Russia has depleted international stockpiles of weapons. And as Julia explains, Western nations are scrambling to keep the supply to Ukraine flowing. And later, Teddy Schleifer is here to discuss the latest FTX fallout and whether Sam Bankman-Fried's political enterprises were actually altruistic, a cynical ploy, or a little bit of both. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers the Beat. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy tuesday everybody i'm joined today by julia yaffe how are you julia hi julia i want to talk to you about what seems like maybe to a lot of americans an endless flow of money and aid to ukraine so far the u.s has spent close to 20 billion dollars on military aid how long is this going to continue? Does uh, Ukraine have a blank check from the United States to just keep the weapons flowing? Well, no, Ukraine does not have a blank check. Ukraine was allotted $40 billion by Congress. It has gotten a good chunk of that, uh, probably a, a bit less than half. Anything else would have to be appropriated by Congress, anything on top of that. And the incoming class has already 
said that Ukraine will not have a blank check. Not that it ever did. But Kevin McCarthy, who aims to be Speaker of the House come January, has said that he will scrutinize very carefully any aid allotted to Ukraine. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we once talked of as a marginal figure, is now set to have a lot more power in the next Congress, has said that she too will be cracking down on aid sent to Ukraine. Um, You know, she comes from the MAGA isolationist wing of the party. And of course, there is a similar skepticism on the left side of the Democratic Party. And it comes at a time when the war is really at a kind of inflection point. If I were Ukraine, I'd be quite worried. We were chatting in the in the Slack earlier planning for today's show. You sent through a couple articles. One of them was this New York Times piece, which basically suggested that while we continue to send this flow of artillery, ammunition, tanks, <laughs> uh, rockets, whatever, to Ukraine, it's kind of depleted stockpiles of weapons. Does that mean that we have to start building more? Like our our military contractors going to get a blank check now? Well, so this is the interesting thing, right? Is for all the talk of the almighty American military industrial complex, in fact, things are quite finite, including these stocks. And part of that comes from the fact that we in the West have been fighting very different wars after the end of the Cold War. In fact, after the end of World War II, people didn't think that we'd be fighting these kinds of land wars that were heavy on artillery barrages. Then the Cold War ended. People assumed that you know land wars, nuclear wars were going to be a thing of the past. Then after 9-11, the West, NATO shifted into more kind of counterinsurgency counterterrorism, kind of lighter, more agile, smaller expeditionary forces. You don't need to keep howitzers and the shells they need in massive um, kind of supply for that, right? You're not going to fight Al-Qaeda and ISIS with howitzers. But along comes Russia on February 24th and invades Ukraine in a very kind of retro-style war and is shooting tens of thousands of rockets at Ukraine and has shot tens of thousands of rockets at Ukraine in the last nine months at a rate we haven't seen since World War II. You know, at this point, it's kind of a war of artillery. It's something we saw on a much smaller scale between 2014 and 22 in the Donbass, where we in the West kind of ignored it as a frozen conflict, even though it claimed 13,000 lives in part because they were just shelling each other back and forth. Now it's on a much wider scale. And to fight it, you're just expending, I mean, for lack of a better visual, they're just like large bullets, right? And you're just like shooting all day. And you need lots and lots of bullets for that. That's what these artillery shells are. And turns out we don't have a lot of those bullets lying around. And not only do we not have a lot of those bullets lying around, A lot of our NATO allies don't have a lot of those bullets lying around or the guns that shoot them. What we did have, we handed over to Ukraine in the first nine months of the war. And so it turns out that not just Russia's stocks are running low, NATO's are as well. Just to put all of that in context in terms of just numbers, this this Times piece had an interesting passage I want to read here. It said, last summer in the Donbass region, the Ukrainians were firing 6,000 to 7,000 artillery rounds 
each day. That's nuts. That is nuts. The Russians were firing 40,000 to 50,000 rounds per day. And by comparison, the United States produces only 15,000 rounds each month. And then there was this interesting quote in here. It says, the amount of artillery being used is staggering, NATO officials say. In Afghanistan, NATO forces might have fired even 300 artillery rounds a day and had no real worries about air defense. But Ukraine can fire thousands of rounds daily and remain desperate for air defense against Russian missiles and Iranian-made drones. And then there's this quote from Camille Grand, who is the defense expert at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Quote, a day in Ukraine is a month or more in Afghanistan. So how else can they replenish these stockpiles other than just manufacturing? Are they like working on deals with like other countries to show up and give some help? That's the thing is every country that is allied with the U.S. is in the same pickle. The answer is essentially manufacturing or negotiation, right? Which we've talked about before and neither party is up for that. So it's going to have to be manufacturing. And in fact, on Monday, Reuters broke a story that Boeing pitched the Pentagon in a proposal to start supplying Ukraine with these uh, cheap, small precision bombs that can be just fitted onto rockets that they already have uh, and that are not in short supply and that can reach further into Russian-held territory. And they're like, hey, come on, we can do this really fast and um, you don't need to review this contract. Let's just do this really fast. So that's a problem, right? Because these reviews are supposed to in theory, ensure that the U.S. government is getting the best deal possible. Doesn't always work that way. But then also there's the idea of former Eastern Bloc countries dusting off their Soviet-era plans to produce more Soviet-style artillery, which the Ukrainians still know how to use, and they have a lot of that equipment that fires it. The problem is that all takes time. been dealing with supply chain issues long before this war started. All of this takes time to retool, readjust, turn these giant manufacturing ships, right, and have them start making this. And, you know, the numbers you quoted are insane. It's literally tens of thousands of rockets a day. We haven't seen anything like this since World War II, where you're just sowing the earth with metal. Obviously, Ukraine isn't the only place in the world that needs weapons. Uh, it is not the only place in the world where there's hot conflict. There's plenty of places in the world where there are clandestine activities going on. There's places in the world where there are simmering tensions. <laughs> One of those places being Taiwan. Does this huge flow of weaponry to Ukraine put pressure on U.S. and NATO countries to honor their other commitments in other places. I mean, you sent through also on the Slack this Wall Street Journal piece basically saying that there's now pressure to fulfill a backlog of uh, basically like air defense capabilities to Taiwan that, that was promised a couple of years ago. Yeah. In fact, Taiwan is, you know, anxiously tapping its watch and is like, hi, you guys are way behind schedule. You're like $20 billion behind where you promised us you would be at this point. Basically, in 2019, uh, the U.S. promised Taiwan a certain amount of javelins, stingers, i.e. the exact kinds of weapons the U.S. is sending to Ukraine right now. The idea being that you want to kind of front load Taiwan with these weapons because once China does invade Taiwan, if it does invade Taiwan, it's going to be impossible to resupply it because it is an island. The problem was that COVID hit 
messing up manufacturing everywhere in the world. And then the war in Ukraine hit, diverting the flows of these javelins, stingers, etc. One of the obvious comparisons that the war in Ukraine set off was, oh, it, is China looking at what Russia is doing in Ukraine and thinking we should wait and not invade Taiwan? Should we invade Taiwan sooner, later? Should we not invade Taiwan at all? But it is interesting, again, that money does really clarify things, right? If money doesn't even buy this stuff, what can you do? If the supply is finite and you can only churn out so many things at once, does it become a sort of limiting factor on the war? Obviously, that is very much an unanswered question. One thing that I keep thinking about when reading these stories, and there's been a whole rash of these stories in the last couple of weeks, as because Westerners were gloating about Russian stocks running low, and then they realized, oh, wait, shit, our stocks are running really low. What are we going to do? It's made me think as the West is kind of teetering on the brink of recession, it made me think a lot about the 1930s, especially the late 1930s and the way in which the U.S. finally climbed out of the Great Depression. And that was World War II and all the manufacturing that the U.S. did for Europe to fight World War II. Somebody had to build those airplanes. Somebody had to build those tanks and those missiles and bombs, et cetera. Obviously, we're talking a much different scale right now, but the economic crisis that we may or may not be facing is also much smaller. It's something that I keep hearing from friends in Europe and friends from Russia and Ukraine is that the only winner in this war between Russia and Ukraine, or the only two winners are China, obviously, and the U.S. Thank you for illuminating this for me. I've been wanting to talk about the weapons stuff for a while with you now. Um, I don't know much about this topic, but I do know that Marjorie Taylor Greene knows more than both <laughs> you and I. <laughs> oh, God. So whatever she says goes. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy asked Teddy Schleifer if Sam Bankman-Fried was really just playing us all. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy. We're in week three of the FTX Sam Bankman-Fried crypto meltdown. The story is only getting more fascinating. So, of course, we've got Teddy Schleifer back on the pod with us to help make sense of it all. Hey, Teddy. Hey, I'm shocked it's only week three. I feel like, uh, you know, might be, <laughs> might be in year three by this point. Teddy, one of the questions hanging over Sam's downfall and the potential for criminal or, or at least civil charges against him is the degree to which he was actually sincere his various political commitments, to what extent some of his philanthropy was a smokescreen. He suggested in a conversation with a reporter after FTX filed for bankruptcy that some of his positions, some of his rhetoric was just, and I'm reading a quote here, a dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths and so everyone likes us. And maybe there's something to that, but, but I think at some level, there's probably a healthy amount of defensive bullshitting there too. Because when you look closely at all the different political projects that he was involved in over the last year or two. I mean, he's clearly very passionate about certain issues, enough that he you know, was effectively maybe embezzling money out of his companies to pay for them. You've done a lot of new reporting over the past week or so into what some of those projects were. Is there a theme that has sort of emerged in his quote-unquote philanthropy? The idea that it is a smokescreen, I'm a seller on that, and maybe, maybe I'll be the last guy naively thinking this. But look, I mean, the complexity of kind of the smokescreen, if it was one, makes me sell that narrative. And here's why. What Sam was playing for 2024 politically involved tons of operatives, tons of, you know, sophisticated, complex structures to try to make sure that Sam had the most influence possible. There are lots of smokescreens in charitable giving, you know, and there are a lot easier ways to set up a smokescreen. You can donate $100 million to uh, Dolly Parton, as as one kind of tech executive did over the last couple of weeks. I feel like the amount of time that Sam and, and his allies were spending on this makes me think it was not a smokescreen. I mean, Sam came from this community of kind of effective altruism even before he was wealthy. You know, he was working with people in this space for like five to 10 years. I do think that both things can be true here where he genuinely does believe these things. But certainly the amount he talked about it could have been, you know, this game that woke Westerners play or however Sam put it. So I guess I'm drawing a little bit of a distinction between what Sam genuinely believes, which I do not think is is artificial, and the strategy of talking about it incessantly, which very well could be artificial. Well, let's talk about where some of the money was planned to be going, because in your recent reporting, you unearthed some projects that people hadn't known about previously. 
Sure. So I think there's uh, two or three recent revelations we've had about Sam's kind of plan for the future that he was already moving on. One is called the Center for the Future. This is a new project we unearthed that was supposed to basically be, as kind of the grandiose name suggests, a huge swing to solve all of the world's problems. I'm, I'm obviously being reductive and, and stereotyping, but, but, but only a little bit. You know, Sam was, was working primarily on pandemic prevention as sort of his political and philanthropic cause. But Sam was planning and, in fact, had already filed for a major new kind of political, charitable, Gates Foundation-esque project where there would be all these various buckets that Sam would would spend his time and money on, whether it's on climate change or nuclear nonproliferation. The center for the future was going to be, you know, the center for the future. It was going to be the center for all kind of future great works of mankind. And I think understanding that helps paint a portrait of kind of who this guy is. Like someone who's been coming up a lot in my my own thinking and has come up in some conversations with sources has been Masayoshi's son and how Masa talks about and is often ridiculed for like a 300-year plan, you know, that he wants to solve the problems of 300 years down the line. And Sam thought about his work and, and his age were kind of executing his work on a 50-year plan. Like people talked about this 50-year campaign for influence. Sam is only 30 years old. He could live for 50 years. So that was the center for the future. The other um, is kind of the other end of the spectrum. So there are political startups that, you know, are for-profit companies that have investor-backed R90 different from Puck in, in, in that sense. And sometimes donors will, you know, individually invest in startups and political startups. Like I know lots of Silicon Valley types who've done that since 2016. But what we learned here at Puck uh, over the last week or so is that Sam Bankman-Fried had actually bought a democratic tech startup, 100%, bought out all existing investors, all existing shareholders. The startup is called DEC, which is sort of a democratic targeting firm that Sam Bankman-Fried bought in a personal capacity for about $5 million because he believed in the technology and he was concerned about its future and thought it would help the left in 2024. I just can't get over how unusual it is to hear of a mega donor buying 100% of a political tech company. That just sort of, I think, speaks to the ways in which Sam was thinking differently about his role in, in being a Democratic donor and, frankly, about kind of the, the power that he wanted to have in the party, that he could kind of you know, have these assets that aren't just his brand and his company and you know, his philanthropy, but he could actually own political like messaging organizations. It's pretty unusual. The ambition that you've described with a 50-year plan, it's all very stupefying. And I wonder now whether it was also something naive given the incompetence that's now been revealed behind the scenes at FTX, how quickly the House of Cards fell down. But again, I'm, I'm left wondering how much of it is real and how much of this was self-interested or cynical, because at the risk of psychoanalyzing this guy, it is notable to me that, of course, one of his biggest political priorities was supporting favorable crypto regulation, befriending politicians that were likely to make that happen for him. And then his other big laser focus, as you noted, is pandemic preparedness, which does fit the themes of effective altruism. But you could also take this more cynical view, whether this guy was just like a germaphobe and this was his, just his, his personal obsession more than an altruistic one. I mean, look, the, the fact of the matter is the predicate for why he was able to have relationships in Washington is sort of irrelevant, in my opinion. At the end of the day, he had influence in Washington because of his political donations because of the lobbyists that FTX hired. You know, I feel like a lot of people now are trying to make these distinctions between Sam's influence on, on crypto and Sam's influence as a democratic or philanthropic donor outside of crypto. But the way Washington works is it's about relationships, right? 
And Sam had relationships for, for one of those ambitions that might benefit the other ambition and, and vice versa. For instance, Sam, you know, might be, probably will be called to testify before Congress. And he's made a lot of donations to people who oversee or could have kind of regulatory power over FTX because they serve on the Financial Services Committee, et cetera, that Sam might have donated to because he agreed with their positions on pandemic prevention. Like, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's hard to distinguish between the extracurriculars and the day job, even if he is, you know, genuinely trying to, because at the end of the day, there's only one Sam Bankman-Fried. And his influence and the fact that he has relationships with all these people comes from both. I'm having trouble these days, I feel like, when, when people are trying to say, like, oh, well, you know, FTX was the problem, but, you know, pandemic prevention stuff and his political stuff, like, it was all good. I think they're much more intertwined in reality and in practice than people care to admit, even if he didn't intend for that to be the case. Because at the end of the day, it's the same, you know, relationship between a CEO and a Senate or House aide. And Sam had influence from one of those causes. And why he had that influence in the first place, like, doesn't really strike me as that relevant. At the end of the day, the, the people who are going to call Sam before Congress took donations from the guy. And whether they took donations from the guy because of their positions on, on crypto, because of their positions on pandemic prevention, like who cares? At the end of the day, Sam has helped bankroll their campaigns, et cetera. I think what you're just saying is this nuanced story. I mean, whether Sam Bankman-Fried is revealed to be fully a con artist or a fraud or merely sort of incompetent who, who you know, let things get away from him. It's also equally true that the story around his philanthropy is going to be complicated, nuanced too, a, a combination of altruistic, mission-driven purpose here, and, and also some degree of cynicism and, and calculation in terms of how he worked Washington to serve other means. We'll continue to find out as the story evolves, and the, uh, the reporting you've been doing is so critical to untangling all that. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Teddy, thanks so much for stopping by. Appreciate it, as always. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.